my grandparents lived their whole lives without really any a very limited understanding and almost no use at all of relativity. Nowadays, everybody's got a freaking cell phone that you depend on to tell you which side of the street you're standing on. And that depends on both special relativity, the speed of spacecraft relative to the Earth's surface, and general relativity, the speed of clocks in spacecraft caused uh, as affected by the Earth's gravity. It's amazing. Just think what the future holds. It's How to Be Amazing. I'm Michael Ian Black, and uh, I want to start today by just talking about some interesting headlines from the last couple days as we record this episode in November of 2018. Uh, from the New York Times, Chinese scientist claims to use CRISPR to make first genetically edited babies. From Wired, touchdown on Mars, NASA lands its InSight spacecraft. From CNN, climate change will shrink economy and kill thousands. These are big stories. They have potentially big implications. They're science stories. And my guest today has spent a career demystifying the world of science. From his early television show appearances on a local Seattle sketch comedy show to his massive public television show, Bill Nye, the Science Guy, has been a science communicator, continues to be a television host, most recently for Netflix. He's the author of several books, and he's CEO of the Planetary Society. Bill Nye has sought to engage young people and adults with science and to, uh, as he puts it, change the world. And I am very happy to welcome Bill Nye to How to Be Amazing. Hi there. Greetings, uh, Michael. Yes, <laughs> greetings. What what questions uh, do we have so far? CRISPR? Well, there's Landing CRISPR, Mars, there's Mars, there's climate the change. economy and climate change. There's, yeah. uh, there's a lot of things that I'm sure we'll get to, but I want, I want to start with just you, Bill Nye. You grew up in the uh, 50s, 60s, and you, you've said that the space program was, was important to you as a kid. It seems like that moment, that like decade in American history, was a, an incredibly powerful inspiration for a generation of children uh, and adults, but, but, but children who would then go on to become scientists, engineers, uh, etc. Can you describe for our, our listeners who may be too young to remember what, what the atmosphere was like during that time period? Well, in the 1960s, there was this what, the way I remember it, which is different from maybe the way it was, is this intense optimism that the United States could accomplish anything. And uh, this was really an echo of World War II, where uh, the Allies got together and solved the global problem in about five years, depending how you reckon. And then the former Soviet Union had this unusual idea for running a government, and it became a competition between the United States and the uh, what would seem like the oppressive regimes of the Eastern Bloc. And landing on the moon was informally the goal to win what would be called, what came to be called the Cold War. But along with that was this optimism. The, the, uh, we're here, I'm, I'm in New York, New York. The town's so nice, they named it twice. <laughs> 
And there was the World's Fair, 1964-65, where you saw all this stuff about the future. And in the future, we're going to have video telephones. In the future, we're going to have flying cars. In the future, people will be able, soldiers will fly around on jetpacks. And it was uh, this optimism that led, and this can-do feeling that led to the landing on the moon. And I'd just like to remind everybody, NASA budget back then was 4%, fully 4% of the federal budget. And there was controversy about whether or not it was worth it. But then after people landed on the moon, it went, wow, that was great. That was really cool. What's it today? Uh, 0.4%. It's about a tenth of that. Mm -hmm. And yet NASA accomplishes these remarkable things. It's the best brand the United States has, as I like to say. But they... uh, there was also leftover, in my opinion, which, as you know, is correct, leftover <laughs> from World War II was this thing that this uh, idea that everybody was going to work together. People were going to work together to accomplish uh, so-called mighty things. And we don't really have that feeling in the United States right now. Space Highlights, 1965, an eventful year in space. These pictures, telecast live from the moon, were recorded by the Ranger 9 spacecraft just before it slammed into the lunar surface. This was the final mission in the Ranger series. In those days, nerds were celebrated. You know, the slide rule became, for those of you who don't know a slide rule, it's a calculator that does not add or subtract, nor does it tell you the decimal point. No, but it but moves the, around a lot and looks kind of oh, neat. Oh, it's cool. They're, they're beautiful things, yeah. So the slide rule became a symbol of nerdiness and... Uh, this is somebody. This was a kind of person we needed in our society to succeed. It seems like that this optimism that you felt as a kid was coupled with a deep patriotism, and you kind of referenced it in, in uh, describing how the Allies came together to win World War II. Um, both of your parents served in the war. Is that an accurate assessment uh, of your own? patriotism and your own love for country? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Both of my parents' ashes are at Arlington National Cemetery. My dad was a prisoner of war for four years with the Japanese military. And I like to say, if you if you think it'd be an adventure to be a prisoner of war, I would d- don't do it. I would let that go. <laughs> just, just read about it. Did he talk about it much? Hardly ever at all. Yeah. And, uh, I can see why it was just it's just too stressful. Now now we just we throw around the expression PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. But I think those all those guys had it. And uh my mom was a code breaker. She was a lieutenant in the navy and worked on this infamous German code based on the Enigma code machine. It's really something. But they fought with people of different religious faiths, different backgrounds, people of different ages, people of different ancestries. They all got in it together to solve this problem. And I just tell you, you can't, you're not going to accomplish anything if you think you can't. There was tremendous nervousness about whether or not the war would be won, but there was also confidence that it could be won. And so they did, you know, uh, and it was, it was uh, a horrible thing. The war was a hor- horrible thing, but it was, 
a real triumph of of the allies and people working together. It was really, and to also of technology. You know, the the um, allies had radar. They had this ability to break codes. It sounds like you are bemoaning a loss of American optimism. I know you're frustrated with uh, what you have called a kind of anti-science contingent in the nation. There are people running around saying the world is flat. <laughs> what, uh, what, what are you guys? Are you dehydrated? Are you high? What are you talking? The world's not flat. What would make you think the world was flat? What would? What? Well, it looks flat when you're standing on the ground. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Let's investigate that. What you're illustrating is the fact that we can question, or though some people question, really fundamental knowledge. Uh, that science has delivered to us is an incredible moment in our history that contrasts directly with the atmosphere in which you grew up. That's right. When you wrestle with this, how do you explain the history of this and how this happened? Well, yeah, Bill, how do you explain the history of this? Well, I I say, at least as a guy who grew up in the United States, the United States got complacent. Uh, took it for granted that the U.S. cars would be better, the U.S. airplanes would be better, the U.S. agriculture would be better, and uh, stopped emphasizing what I would call elementary science education. And then uh, every, everybody who works at Google, or rather who starts a, a company like Google or Amazon or SpaceX, got excited about science before he or she was 10 years old. And this is well-documented. We have very reliable research on this. If it's not 10, it's 11 or 12. It ain't 17 or 21, I'll tell you. And so by not having generations of kids raised with the tradition of science, you end up getting out-competed by other economies, other countries. And so you don't want that. We, we, nobody wants that. In fact, when you travel the world, people expect the United States to be a world leader in science and technology. And when you, when we're not, people get concerned, people everywhere. So that's why I started doing the Science Guy show. I'm very concerned about the future. And uh, I still am, as you infer. And then we have, understand, the evidence for climate change, human-caused climate change, is overwhelming. It's not... It's scientifically undisputed, yet we have people who work very hard to try to introduce the idea that scientific uncertainty, plus or minus 2%, is the same as plus or minus 100%. And that's just wrong. Future generations will laugh at us as well as be furious with us. Well, in fairness, there may not be future generations, so, you know, they won't laugh. Humans are almost extinction-proofed. I mean, just humans are just global butt kickers. But what you want is to have as few people as possible suffer. You want to have a high quality of life for everyone on earth. That's our goal. Clean water, reliable electricity, renewable electricity, and access to the internet for everyone. Let's go. Let's get her done. (laughs) Uh, I began today by talking about genetically engineered children 
Can you explain for our audience who may not know what CRISPR is? Oh, it, yes, I'm an expert on CRISPR. Sure I am. We, Palindromic gene repeats. Oh, yes. We, well, well, I can Bill Nye, what, we go to you to be it. an expert on all things science. Yeah, well, here's the way I look at it. You know, there's different people in the world. There's lumpers and splitters. Have you heard these expressions? <laughs> no, I've heard of showers and growers, but I think that's something different. Yeah, so some people... This is in one of the uh, one of the great insights in science is to see the connections between phenomena and things we come across in nature. We we realize that the physics on Earth and the physics on the Moon are the same. The law, the rules of motion and energy are the same. And so I'm a lumper. Just uh, let's just face it. So here's what we discovered: that certain genes from one species can be introduced into another species naturally. And the common way this happens in nature is with a virus. So a virus is a collection of proteins that enables it to use other organisms to reproduce the virus, to reproduce the same proteins. And in so doing, they carry genes from one species into another. And the example that most of us have seen in nature is the galls, the uh, mushroom-shaped growth on certain trees, an infection that the tree deals with and the uh, virus uh, carries on, doesn't kill the tree, yet genes travel or get expressed from one species into another. I never thought about what that was before, seeing those little mushroom things on trees. Yeah, yeah. So along this line, humans now are able to harness certain viral proteins to carry genes that we want to put into a different species. And this is where you get genetically modified crops. Mm -hmm. And it's where you get uh, this technology that's now going by the acronym CRISPR, that guys in China claim, so far unsubstantiated, that they were able to introduce genes into fetuses before the, was it twins that were born, with the premise or the idea that you could introduce immunity to the human immunodeficiency virus, to AIDS, HIV, which would be extraordinary. Uh, now, this hasn't been proven, but they claim they've done it. And I got to say, scientifically, it's quite reasonable. In a science fiction future, parents would imbue their kids with their uh, babies with immunities, IQ, physical attributes that seem desirable. And uh, then you'd have a better world for everyone. Or you'd produce a race of mindless soldiers who would do your bidding to destroy all humankind. <laughs> or you've and got it's... or you've got a sort of two-tier humanity where you've got where you're using eugenics for the sort of top-tier humanity to create essentially a master race and then you've got this un-eugenically enhanced uh, species that that does not have the same advantages. Yeah, this is, you know, the subject of all sorts of science fiction, uh, and quite reasonably, but we're living at a time when this is going to be possible, apparently. But I will say, this is a fine and wonderful thing in the developed world, but most of the babies in the world, as a result of most of the sex in the world, is going to go on in conventional fashion, I think, for quite a while. But 
I'll bet you you know somebody who was born by somebody, I mean, right now it'd be somebody under 15 years old who was born by in vitro fertilization. Right. And uh, you might know somebody who's 20, 25 years old. So this technology has been around a long time, and uh, people just love having babies. They go crazy. <laughs> My parents did it, for example. Yes, they did. They, they had uh, three of them. And I was watching a documentary about you, and one of the uh, unfortunate byproducts in your genetic code is something called ataxia. Can you explain what ataxia is? Well, ataxia is a symptom. Uh, so it, embra- it encompasses uh, about 40 different uh, causes that people at uh, the Kennedy Krieger Institute at Johns Hopkins University are studying. Apparently, if you have the wrong repeated genes, it affects your cerebellum, the base of your brain, and it affects your balance, your ability to walk, and sometimes your fine motor skills and your speech because it's your tongue and jaw are finely motored. And it's a drag. Uh, my brother and sister have it. My dad had it. His brother, my uncle, had it. And that side of the fam- my uncle's side of the family all has this uh, uh, affliction, and it sucks. And it's a result of a gene repeat. So currently, they think they've studied, they've looked for about a quarter of the probable causes. If there are eighty thousand possibilities, they've eliminated about twenty thousand. Wow. But you could imagine a day where it's so well understood, you would introduce this modification to the genetic code of people in my family, and the ataxia would not would would go away. You wouldn't have it anymore. So it's amazing. It's amazing, and it's amazing to talk about to me anyway. These kind of real life uh, examples of how. This cutting edge science, in this case CRISPR, which I think I think you're saying it, it, it would be the same technology because these are repeating genes. Oh yeah, it's ex- absolutely. You would have very distinct outcomes for for real people like yourself and your family. And for you, uh, those of you who love the history of evolution or of our human understanding of evolution, there's two kinds, uh, generally considered two kinds of evolution: natural and artificial. Artificial is the expression that Charles Darwin embraced. And you know all about artificial evolution because you eat food and you spend time with dogs. <laughs> so the modern food, whether – we're not talking about modern gene engineering or genetic, uh, genetically modified organisms, GMOs. We're talking about just regular farm breeding. A modern ear of corn is much bigger and more nutritious and delicious than five centuries ago because farmers have been carefully breeding, just selecting which uh, plant breeds with which plant. And then in the case of dogs, on Thanksgiving Day, isn't it fun to watch the dog show? Of course it is. People talk about this breed of dog, this Scottish terrier, this hunting poodle. this They're all dogs, you guys, but people have bred, have selected which dog gets to have sex with which other dog to control the size, shape, and hair color and hair length of the offspring. And that's what Darwin called artificial selection. So the thing about evolution that's important to remember is there is no natural force to ensure that you or I will be happy with the outcome. 
This is to say, in evolution, you only have to be good enough to pass your genes on. You don't have to be perfect. Today I'm talking with a man who has spent his career making science entertaining and accessible. What you might not know about Bill Nye is that he got his start as a comedian while working a day job at Boeing. As someone who grew up watching Bill Nye the Science Guy, I can say that he also made science pretty cool. Coming up, we talk about his early dreams of being an astronaut, how Carl Sagan changed his life, and what ballet shoes and light sails have in common. When you talk about human investment in science, and we talked about NASA earlier, what, what do you believe the government's proper role is in terms of science? So space exploration is an ideal example of this. People are, you know, admire SpaceX and Elon Musk as a visionary, and that's cool. But there is no uh, earlier this week, November twenty sixth, twenty eighteen. We landed a spacecraft on Mars, the InSight lander, to study the interior of Mars, to look, to listen for Mars quakes, if you will. And uh, there's nobody making money by landing that on Mars. The, the contractors, the, the machinists and uh, software engineers and, and rocket scientists, they make a little bit of money, but you're not going to go there to sell anything. There's no business case for landing a seismometer on Mars. Whereas SpaceX Blue Origin Orbital, ATK, they make rockets to sell to NASA, to sell to the European Space Agency, to sell to communications companies, weather satellites, uh, so-called situational awareness, uh, spy satellites. So it's a different thing. Building Building rockets and sexy cars is cool, but that's not what NASA does. NASA explores Mars, maps the surface of Mars, maps Europa, the moon of Jupiter, with twice as much seawater as the Earth. Two different things. They're related, but they're two different important ideas, uh, di- different use of our intellect and treasure. So if you're asking me, yeah, Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution refers to the progress of science, promoting the progress of science and useful arts. And to me, the phrase useful arts was 18th century terminology for what we nowadays call engineering, mm-hmm. using science to make things and solve problems. You believe, and, it, and it's right there, that we are constitutionally mandated to actually go out and, as you just said, solve problems, figure stuff yeah, out. Well, so, and just objectively, if you want to remain competitive in the world, you have to invest in science by you, your society. Now- India has a space uh, agency, ISRO, Indian Space Research Organization. South Africa has a space agency. Mexico has a space agency. Britain has just revved up its space agency again. France has a fantastic – the seismometer on Mars is a French-built gizmo. And they do – these countries do this because they realize the power of the investment. When you have a bunch of – 
well-educated scientists and engineers running around solving rocket problems, or spacecraft problems, understanding the cosmos and our place within it, your society is just better off. You end up making discoveries that change the world. I talk all the time about my grandparents lived their whole lives without really any a very limited understanding and almost no use at all of relativity. Nowadays, everybody's got a freaking cell phone that you depend on to tell you which side of the street you're standing on, which direction you should walk, how to get wherever. And that depends on both special relativity, the speed of spacecraft relative to the Earth's surface, and general relativity, the speed of clocks in spacecraft caused uh, as affected by the Earth's gravity. It's amazing. And so just, just think what the future holds. I actually love that point because a lot of times the American curmudgeonly taxpayer will say, well, it's fine that they're uh, researching such and such obscure random thing, but why should I have to pay for it? It has no practical application. But when Einstein figured out relativity, both general and special, to my knowledge, he was not doing it for a commercial application. There were things observed in nature that people couldn't explain, and he explained them. (laughs) <laughs> and by doing so, um, we find where we can apply that knowledge. So when I was a kid, lasers had been discovered or invented. And a laser, light amplification by stimulated emissions of radiation, is a gizmo that creates a beam of light where all the waves are going up and down together. They're synchronized. And the term was coined coherent light. Coherent light. There was no such thing in my father's time. Now there's lasers in everything. You probably have a laser pointer in your pocket or your desk drawer. I don't. We, you know, I don't want to shock you all, but we have a 747 with a laser on it designed to zap satellites. Really? Yeah, no comment. <laughs> You are, uh, as I said, the CEO of the Planetary Society. What is the Planetary Society? And can you talk about a little bit its founder, Carl Sagan, and the influence he also had on a generation of young scientific minds? So what happened was, (laughs) I first of all, I got into Cornell University, and that I'm pretty sure was just a mistake in the admissions (laughs) office. I mean, no, really, the people I went to school with were so freaking smart. But I got through it, and then uh, I was a senior. I decided to take one class from Carl Sagan, this famous guy, and it changed my life. Now, the life on Earth is something we're concerned about, that uh, since we're a part of it, we think it very important. And yet that life covers an extraordinarily thin layer of the planet. It is, as Sir James Jeans once said, a kind of rust on the planetary surface. And one question which always arises, every human culture has wondered about it, is how did life come to be? Where did the rust come from? His lectures were fantastic. He had this way of speaking and these insights. He gave you stuff to think about every day that were amazing. And he felt that public interest in space exploration was very high, but government investment was not. And you can make a strong argument that the Viking landers on Mars, and then the Voyager spacecraft, which we still talk about, they're still flying, 
One of them is, we're pretty sure, has left the solar system, as the saying goes. That was uh, the end of an important era. And to illustrate it objectively, the Viking landers were landed in 1976 and 77. The next mission to Mars was not for 20 years. Hmm. Carl Sagan felt that uh, he needed to create a group of people who would support space exploration. And I'm a charter member. I've been a member ever since. Carl Sagan's kids watched the Science Guy show. So I was asked to be on the board of the Planetary Society, which I thought was pretty cool. And then you've probably done this. I left the room and they took a vote and I came back and now I'm the CEO. (laughs) And so the idea is to advance space science and exploration so that everyone in the world will have a sense of the cosmos and our place within it. When everyone on Earth has a sense of the cosmos and our place within it, then, you know, we'll shut the doors. But that's a long way off. One of the big projects that I know about with the Planetary Society is light sail, um, creating these massive solar sails that will use the, the, the power of solar radiation to propel them. And when you say massive... The idea is to keep the mass as low as possible. <laughs> right. And yeah, I know it's funny. And then to have the sail area, and you guys, the, the word sail applies perfectly. These things operate just like a sailboat, except it turns out that light, well, this, by the way, is a consequence of quantum electrodynamics or relativity or physics or whatever you want to call it. Light, although it has no mass, you can't weigh light and, or, or um, put it on a scale and weigh it. Although it has no mass, it has momentum. It's pure energy. And so when it hits things, when light hits you, it's giving you a little push, a tiny push. And so if you get a spacecraft that's big enough, low enough mass, and shiny enough, light pushes it through space. It's crazy. And so uh, Carl Sagan talked about this in the 1970s, and he brought a model to class. He showed a model on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson of a solar sail spacecraft. Well, let's, let's talk about this. This is, this is interesting. Well, there's, there's a just tremendously exciting prospect called solar sailing. Solar this, sailing. And this is a, uh, a very crude model and which travels on the radiation and particles that come out of the sun the wind from the sun. And it works exactly as uh, an ordinary sailboat does. So it can go out from the sun, it can tack inwards to the sun, and because it has a constant acceleration, it can get you around the inner part of the solar system a lot faster and a lot more conveniently than the usual sorts of of rocket propulsion. Now, what would this do? Well, the Planetary Society, 39 years later, was able to fly the LightSail 1 spacecraft, and we are waiting to fly LightSail 2. LightSail 2 is the same spacecraft with some very important enhancements, and we are ready to go. Our clock's running. The batteries are charged up. It's in a clean room in Pasadena. We're waiting for SpaceX and the other payloads, the other uh, Gizmos satellites to be launched on this rocket to all be ready. And then we will go to Cape Canaveral. Come on down, everybody. We'll go to the cool viewing stand where you're just looking right at the launch pad. I can get you in. I know a guy. <laughs> and, uh, well, it's a big party. This this Falcon Heavy rocket is freaking amazing. 
Um, I, what I, I, I didn't know this about you, that you applied to be an astronaut four different times. Oh, yeah, four times. What yeah. Did, what, uh, and they rejected you. Do you know why? Oh, yes. No, when you, the people that become astronauts nowadays, the first question is, how many PhDs do you have? It's multiple choice. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the first box is A, 100 to 300. <laughs> no, the people that become astronauts now are these amazing over, how many marathons have you run this month? Right. No, it's just on and on. And the other thing that happened, though, is Krista McCullough got killed in the uh, Challenger uh, explosion. And she was a civilian. A t- well, they're all civilians. She was a, a, a not a. Um, she she wasn't an official she part of. She had risen the, through the right. ranks as an astronaut. She was a teacher in space, and when she got killed, flying people like me was probably not going to happen. Oh, so you were already this. This is later in your career. I mean, this isn't at the very start of your career when you were when. You, no, this is long about nineteen ninety seven. Oh, I see. Ninety six, maybe I applied the first time. We were talking about uh, space flight, Mars, and I, I maybe I have this wrong, but I think you said humans will never live on Mars. Is that right? Well, the word live, people live in Antarctica. Right. Right. But they don't go to Antarctica to build schools and playgrounds and libraries and stuff, have communities and courthouses. and No, there's nothing to eat and there's nothing to drink. And on Mars, this I'm talking about the dry valleys of Antarctica. And on Mars, we'll take it up one more notch. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink, nothing to breathe. <laughs> you can't breathe, <laughs> so people. It's, like, it's also not that much to do. Well, that's another that's another question. You know, what is the what's the economy of the moon base? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for example, what's the economy of the Mars? Ba- what's the economy of Antarctica? It's the U.S. Navy studying the Antarctic environment. And it's fantastic. It's a great thing. It's a worthy thing that we have a science base in Antarctica. It may have saved the world in that we discovered the hole in the ozone and what to do to help it repair itself. But having a settlement on Mars seems to me very, very unlikely. And so it's very romantic. You know, we're going to go settle another world. We're going to advance. Well, we're going to terraform. We're going to terraform it. Yeah, sure. We'll just set off nuclear weapons on the North Pole of Mars. <laughs> and in about two weeks, there'll be a whole ecosystem, just like the Amazon. Yeah. You guys, you just... That's just that's what they did in Star Trek that time when they brought Spock yes, back to life. Right, it was yes. cool. Yeah. So do humans have a place outside of Earth? Is there ever... Is there is there a way for humans to escape our planet? I don't know. But I would say as a first cut, no. <laughs> Um, a, a little off point, that was a deliberate pun on my part. You patented a ballet shoe. Yes, yes. How did you get interested in ballet or the shoe and why? And have you made any money from it? Oh, no, no money. No, no, never. No, that patent has will probably never be used because technology is advanced. So we did a show on bones and muscles, the science guy show, bones and muscles, bones and muscles. Bell, bell, bell. T minus seven seconds. Bill, 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 Bill
Without them, you wouldn't have a leg to stand on. Bones and muscles available in fine animals everywhere. And we were in Seattle. We lived in Seattle, the producers and I, the crew. And we went to the Pacific Northwest Ballet, the Seattle Ballet Company. They're very well respected. They're, it's a big deal ballet company. And there are all these young people, mostly women, with these crazy injuries. P- the p- girls, w- women who had had three surgeries before they were 22 years old, scars on their ankles and stuff. And I just realized that um, the ballet shoe hasn't changed much in centuries. So I had this idea to spread the force of being on point, as it's called, on the tips of your toes, to the underside of your your toe knuckles, the phalanges are the name of the bones, the phalanges. And I thought that was a cool idea, and we got a patent on it. But now, I believe, in the very near future, you will go into the shoe store. They'll scan your foot with a laser, probably, and then custom mold the sole of the shoe to your foot. And then they'll custom mold and shape the curve of the ballet sole to optimize your ability to go on point as a dancer. I just think about, do you know the, uh, the, the original brand was Invisalign to align your teeth? Yeah. I think the same sort of thing will happen with your phalanges. Well, I, I think it's kind of a, a fun and great illustration of these very basic principles of seeing a problem and using using your tools, not you, but science's tools and yours specifically to think creatively to solve that problem. And it speaks to not just kind of practical problems in the world, but also creative problems in the world. When we see a need for something and then just to have that moment of inspiration and go, oh yeah, ballerina's feet are all fucked up i can fix that problem well i can address it can address it so uh you become a mechanical engineer because you like mechanisms and linkages and shapes and you see a problem you try to solve it that's just how we roll and it's funny you know we uh we are nerds i mean this we celebrate nerdiness and when we look at the smallest problem, I don't know if it's not the smallest to ballerinas, but it's a it's a relatively small problem to the largest problems. And, and we're talking, I'm thinking now about uh, climate change. As a mechanical engineer and science educator, when you look out into the medium horizon of climate change, do you see any solutions uh, beyond reducing greenhouse gases? Oh, yeah. Well, what we want to do is stop burning fossil fuels. We want to do that today, immediately. And in order to do that, we have to have a source of electricity. When people talk about energy, we're really talking about electricity. Electricity is magical. You can have a podcast with microphones and speakers and send it all over the world. Or you can make toast with electricity. (laughs) It's amazing. We have means to create electricity without burning stuff, the wind and the sun. Solar panels, you're probably familiar with solar panels, are good. They could certainly be a lot better. Right now, the very best solar panels are 30%, 25 28% efficient. Most of them you buy for your house are 15% efficient. In other words, 85% of the sun's energy just turns to heat. It doesn't turn to electricity. Mm -hmm. But 15% is infinitely bigger than zero. Right. 
And so... Has that percentage so, been creeping up in recent years? Have solar yeah, cells yeah. been getting more effective? Yeah, yeah. Or so efficient? if I were king of the forest, we would be investing in that like crazy. Then the other thing are wind turbines. Iowa gets 25% of its electricity from the wind mm-hmm. for free. But then the problems to be solved are electricity storage, batteries, what have you, and then uh, distribution. We need new electrical, we'll, we will soon need a new electrical grid that can tolerate variations in wind and solar energy as the sun comes up and goes down, the wind blows, stops blowing. And does that sunshine, does that technology sun. exist for us to do that yeah. and we're just lacking investment? Yeah, that's my, our opinion. So I encourage everyone to check out the solutionsproject.org. These are mostly civil engineers at Stanford University that have done this analysis. We could power the whole world, 130, 150 countries we could power renewably right now if we just decided to do it. As we wrap up here on How to Be Amazing, we always end the same way with The Amazing Five, in which I will ask for a recommendation from you in each of five categories, things that you would recommend to others. And I will begin today with music. What music does Bill Nye listen to? I listen to swing music. Mm. Exclusively? uh, No. I'm also on a big cowboy jag these days. I'm not talking about country western music where everybody's drunk and sad and throwing bottles at the jukebox. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about cowboys riding the trail and living out under the stars and don't fence me in. Uh-huh. Who who's a who's a uh, classic cowboy artist? Uh, uh pi- the uh, Sons of the Pioneers. Uh-huh. Andy Parker and the Plainsmen. But if you want to hear that music, my favorite band right now is Riders in the Sky. It's not for everybody. Uh-huh. <laughs> Riders, Ranger Doug and the Riders in the Sky are pretty great. Uh, what about uh, food? What do you like to eat? Uh, I Well, I'm eating more pasta than I ever used to. I don't know. I'm just into all the different shapes right now. And the thing that I – I am not allergic to peanuts. Uh-huh. I've met a lot of people that are. I eat apples and peanut butter. And the envy apple, this new strain of apple or new variety, rather, of apple – Oh, my goodness. What kind of apple is it closest to? Because I'm partial to a gala. That's okay. It's much. The envy is sweeter. Uh Uh-huh. And I prefer the texture. It's firmer. Where do they come from, the envy apples? Two places, uh, New Zealand and Washington State. Mm. You got to have that cool climate. Apples don't grow, apparently, in in a rainforest. It's not their thing. Apples and peanut butter and pasta. Have you always been uh, as rail thin as you are? Do you have to work at that? Well, uh, I think I know what you mean. Yeah, I do work at it. I'm very aware of what I eat. I'm not obsessed with it. But everybody... So my grandmother was French from France, Mm -hmm. had an accent. 
and her people eat this crazy rich food. Butter and steaks and palm frites, french fries. Sure. But they don't eat very much of it, of each thing. And when you, I tell you guys, when you travel in Europe, not that it's all about Europe, but you'll see, or Japan, people just, they don't overeat. And if you're out there trying to lose weight, you got to work the problem from both ends. You may have heard the expression diet and exercise. <laughs> it's not a new thing. We have this new diet where you only eat huh. potato chips. Or okay. You still can't eat too many of them. Diet and exercise. All right, I'll write it. Down. I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a neat idea. I'll write yeah, it down. Yeah, try it. It's crazy. Uh, Kids. What about books? What are you reading? Well, I just read uh, The Handmaid's Tale, mm-hmm. and it's you know creepy science fiction that's got turned into this very successful television series. I just finished that book, and I don't want to give away the ending, <laughs> but it's a cool science fiction style ending yeah it is uh, i don't want to give it away well don't and then another in a not unrelated story if you've ever read the read the stepford wives it's a scary book it's scary mm-hmm. these guys kill their wives and build robots that look like their wives <laughs> well it's i mean it's if you're the wife it's probably not what you want right probably not no yeah and so in that book, the pill, birth control, right. is capitalized, capital T, capital P. That's when it was written. And this relates to your earlier questions about CRISPR. Mm-hmm. This was a very scary technology when it came out, the pill. Like, does it make women crazy? What will men do if women can have sex whenever they want? <laughs> <laughs> This will be this is horrible revolution, and it did revolutionize society. So, in the case of this other medical advancement, CRISPR is very reasonable. We'll go through a couple decades where people are trying to sort it out, and after a while, it becomes commonplace. Just the same way in vitro fertilization, IVF has become commonplace. What about film or TV? Uh, let's see. I, the last film I saw was First Man. I saw the Triplets film. That is. Cool. Oh, that's neat, right? Uh, Identity. Yeah, what's just it called? Everybody, just, you can say it was evil and sick. It was the, they thought they were doing the right thing. What, it's is, a, the, it's, what is the name of that? It's called, uh, 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 I want to say Perfect Strangers. but Identical that, Strangers. Identical Strangers. Yeah. <laughs> right, Perfect cool. Strangers was the sitcom from the 80s. Uh, yes. Um, and then finally, miscellaneous. Anything from your life that you would recommend to others that you yes, love? Yes, learn to tie knots. Ah, Sailor knots and such. Well, knots are power. When you can tie a knot in a string or a rope that you can trust, trust your life to, then your Isaac Newton's birthday tree will not blow off the roof of your car. Mm -hmm. Your shoe will not come untied with the frequency that other people's do. Right. And you will be empowered and your life will be enriched. And you will be able to tie a natty bow tie. A natty bow tie. Yes. Yes. See, when you get dressed up, if you're a guy, what do you do? You wear a tux, mm-hmm. tuxedo. And you have a bow tie. Yes, cert- sure, certain actors show up looking super hip with an <laughs> asymmetrically tied straight tie. Get over it. Then you can't see the buttons that studs. Uh-huh. No, you wear a bow So you want to be able to tie the bow tie. Same knot as on your shoe, people. 
I didn't. Yes. I actually did not know it was the same knot as in your same shoe. exact same knot. Huh? Is it a similar? Knot? It's exactly the same huh. knot. If I take nothing else away from this interview, I'm taking that away. That I already have the skills to tie a bow tie. Yes. I, ju- I just haven't applied them. Yes. So I recommend everybody tie it around your leg. Mm-hmm. Your thigh is about the same diameter as your neck hmm. or uh, approximate diameter. So then you can learn the pattern. You tie it over and over. You learn the pattern, and then you'll be able to reproduce it in a mirror. Well, Bill Nye, I mean, that is that is excellent advice. Uh, thank you for taking the time and, and educating us on so many things, not the least of which is just your own personal story, which I think people uh, find fascinating and inspiring. Thank you for all your work over the years, inspiring children and educating children. And thank you for being amazing. Thank you, Michael. Let's change the world. <laughs> How to Be Amazing is brought to you by PRX. Like How to Be Amazing on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at HTBA underscore show and check out our website at howtobeamazingshow.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on iTunes. How to Be Amazing is produced by Jennifer Brennan and Mary Shimkin. It's recorded at Argo Studio in New York City. Today's show is mixed and edited by Robin Lynn with music composed by Chad Crouch. I'm Michael Ian Black.